Let's pray together. And uh, once again, as we are get our hearts quiet before the Lord, we've been blessed so much already this morning. Would you now ask God to speak to your heart through the word? And God, we do pray that you would anoint this time, the power of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you'd speak to each and every, each and every one of our hearts as we open up your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning. We want to turn to Psalm 147, and as, as we do, we know we're finishing up a series of, uh, on Psalms, uh, last in a series of messages, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed it the way uh, I have in studying it, and I hope you've enjoyed uh, reading through it in your devotional life as well. Uh, we heard a great song just a few moments ago. In fact, all the songs this morning really fit in to what we're going to be talking about this morning. As we look at and ask the question, what good is God? I mean, after all, God can do these things. God, God's able to do them, but sometimes he doesn't. And therefore, we say, well, we're still going to hope in the Lord. And that's something that we should, should come to that conclusion. But, you know, I remember when I received Christ into my heart. And uh, I was 16 years old. I remember so vividly, like it was yesterday, getting on the school bus with a grin on my face that I couldn't wipe off. You know, and I was just looking for somebody to ask me, why, why are you smiling this morning? I'm just, just, just waiting for someone to give me the chance to tell them the decision that I had made in my life. And, you know, growth began to set in. I began to read the Bible a little bit, not much, but a little bit. I just didn't know how to grow. But growth set in, just like it did for you, but adversity sets in as well. And the trials come in life, and sometimes we, we begin to wonder, well, God, where are you in all this? And we, we wonder and we say, well, God, you know, I prayed for a certain school to get into, and it really would depend, say if it's a military school, it's going to depend on my whole future, and I didn't get in. And so, God, what good, what good are you? And somebody else says, well, I prayed and prayed for a child, or I prayed and prayed for my marriage, and God chose not to answer that one. So, God, what good are you? And that's the, the question that Philip Yancey um, an author asked the question, a Christian author, what good is God? And Psalm 147 says that's really not the question that we ought to be asking. It's not really the first question at all. And so what is that question? In Psalm 147, we open up and we, again, as we said last week in Psalm 146, the last five psalms are just praise psalms. They're hallelujah psalms, they're called. And they're just praising God and giving us different reasons for praising the Lord. This psalm in particular is really, if you can get the picture, the Israelites were exiled off into Babylon captivity. And Babylonian cap Babylon fell and another, uh, another um, uh, country took over. And they decided to let the exiles of Israel go back to their homeland, go back to Jerusalem. And so you can just imagine them taking what few belongings they had as they were in slavery, if they had anything at all, walking back, really rejecting, re rejected and dejected, going to a place they've never been before in their entire lives, going back home. And so in Psalm 147, we see two things that I want to look at, two questions. Number one, what are we called to do? And secondly, how can we do it? 
Because the first question is not, what good is God? It's another question. We'll get to that in just a moment. First of all, what are we called to do? Well, according, according to these last five Psalms, and really all throughout the Bible, we're called to praise the Lord. We're called to worship. Now, the reason we're called to worship, he says in this Psalm, is because it's fulfilling and because it's fitting. Let's look. It says, praise the Lord, for it, it is good. That is, this word in the Greek, or in the Hebrew, is fulfilling to, for us to sing praises to God. It is pleasant. It's just talking about how good he is again. It is again. And, and praise and praise is becoming. And this word becoming has the idea of the word fitting. So it's both fulfilling and fitting. Let's look at the fulfilling. He says, praise the Lord. Now, this word praise comes from actually two Hebrew words. One is Hallel and the other one is Yahweh. The word Hallel has to do with um, holding up and, and to boast, to be proud of something. Now, we've said last week that worship is the art of assigning value to something in such a way that it engages our entire being. And we said that we've already assigned that kind of value. The, the, the option of worshiping nothing is not there. We all worship something. We all put something on the throne of our life, that first place of our life in which we place our confidence in. And there, here's the problem. If we're putting God on the throne of our life, Christ on the throne of our life, and we're placing our confidence in him and he doesn't come through, it causes us to answer that question. God, how useful are you? What good are you? Now, you and I know that we've assigned value to something, but then everything seems to be kind of broken. And he says, look, praise the Lord, I am proud to be a follower of God. That's what he's saying. Now, you remember the psalmist said, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. So, halal simply means you're proud of something. It's like wearing your, your team colors. Uh, for example, um, I was, uh, I'll just take something out of town, all right? Go back to Atlanta. Uh, last winter, or winter before that, I, I can't remember what it, which one it was. I think it was last winter where the, the Hawks were actually in the playoffs, Atlanta Hawks. Did you realize Atlanta had a basketball team? Did you realize? Most people in Atlanta, I don't think, did. I mean, for all these years, they've never been in the playoffs since I can remember maybe back in early days. And they're in the finals for the first time. And I'm walking in all these stores, and Hawks stuff is everywhere and people are wearing the shirts and 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 all that and I thought wow this is this is really unusual I mean it was unusual for the Falcons but man read the Hawks man the Hawks but everybody wanted to wear the colors everybody wanted to wear the shirt why because they were winners and everybody wants to be identified with a winner and what what that does for us when we are identifying ourselves with a winner, we feel connected in some way. So we wear the shirt, we wear the hat, we feel kind of connected. And the psalmist is saying, I know I'm worshiping a winner. I'm, I know I'm on the winning team and I'm boasting in the Lord himself. And then the second part of this is Yahweh, a covenant name for God. Now, the reason that name is important in this, it says, praise the Lord. He says, pray, the, the word Lord here, by the way, is also the word Yahweh. And it's the covenant name for God. Now, the reason that's important is because if you remember me telling the story of, uh, well, I guess I, it's been a while, but um, when they make a, a covenant, they would cut an animal in half and they would put it kind of like an aisle here. And they would put 
half of the, the animals on one side, half the animals on the other, and both people, both parties would pass through the animals, the torn animals, saying that may this happen to me if I break this promise, break this covenant. But with Abraham and the, the covenant that he made with God, God is the only one who walked through the animals in the, in the dream. And so we find here that there is an unconditional, an unconditional covenant that God has made with Abraham. And so the, the word here is simply saying this, God has a covenant relationship with us that's unconditional. There's an unconditional love involved in this. And so when you and I place Christ on the throne, you and I worship him and boast in him, it's fulfilling to us. We are where God has designed us to be, and we, we experience that, that fulfilling love and that covenantial love and because we're Christians. We've made that, God has made that covenant with us. Christ went to the cross. We didn't have to go to the cross. Christ died for us on the cross, and so now that covenant love passes on to us, that unconditional love that he has for us. But I want you to notice, and here's the brunt of the message coming up. It is also fitting, he says, for it is pleasant, and praise is becoming. Now, this word, fitting or becoming, could go either way. It's, it's fitting that it, and, and beautiful. That's what it means. You, you remember the, the phrase, things like, uh, well, she's, uh, oh, she's very becoming. It means beautiful. And so he's saying here, for it is pleasant and praise, his, his praise is beautiful. And so the beauty here, according to the dictionary, beauty is, per, uh, is perceptual, get that word right in a minute, perceptual experience of pleasurable satisfaction through the mind and heart. So here it is. True worship is present when we see God as beautiful and not just as useful. The reason we're asking the question, God, what good are you? you you're not saying that out loud. I'm being brash by, maybe by saying that, but you don't say that out loud. But when God doesn't come through, you have that in the back of your mind. God, what, what good is all this? How useful are you? But true worship comes and putting Christ first in our life, and that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about just praying and singing. We're talking about the lifestyle of putting Christ first. This has the idea of beautiful and has the idea is that we ask God to, because we want something, because first and foremost, we look at him as someone as useful. Now, Tim Keller brings out this in, in this way. He says that if you have a business relationship, that is really based on petition. Good insight. And if you have a loving relationship, a, a one that's based upon um, for example, marriage. You have a praise relationship. Let me just illustrate that. You have a business relationship. Somebody calls you up. I don't care if you're a man, woman, it doesn't matter. Somebody calls you up that you have a business relationship with, that you want something from, or they want something from you. What's the first question that comes to your mind after you talk about the stuff that doesn't matter? Uh, what can I do for you? In other words, you want to know, why did you call me? And a person you know, on the other line, you know, your, your business associate that you talk to maybe twice a month, 
is not going to say, I just want to tell you how beautiful you are. I just want to tell you what a great business partner you are. No, they are going to give you something of information or they're going to ask you for something. And so this type of relationship is based upon, if you're comparing it to prayer, petition. What do you want from me and what do I want from you? However, a different kind of relationship, a loving relationship, like marriage, for example, like having children, is based more upon praise. For example, you meet a girl. Some of you guys, you met your wife for the first time. Some of you can't hardly remember this. I understand that. But, you know, others, you know, really can't. And um, you met your wife. You thought, wow, how beautiful she really is. And you just lavish praise upon her. Now, some of you ladies think, she, he was just trying to flatter me. No, some guys, when they really are connecting, most guys, when they really are connecting, all right, with beauty, they can't help but things come out of their mouth at first just to describe how that makes them feel. Now, when you look at something that's really beautiful, in fact, when you go to um, the beach, for example, I read an article the other day, when you go to the beach, it's so beautiful and the scenery is so great and the noise just coming in, it's soothing. It actually relaxes you and soothes you. And maybe you're looking at the beach and just say, wow, you know, what a beautiful sunrise, what a beautiful sunset. And aesthetically, you're just drawn to it and you want to talk about that. You just make comment about it. And, and the, you may say, wow, you know, I just really want to marry you and uh, I, I, I just, and she says, no, no, wait a minute. You don't want to marry me. Well, why not? I can't cook. And his response is, I don't care. You know, my mama can cook. I've got a mama. And he's just thinking, wow, you're just so great, so beautiful. In fact, not just beauty on the outside, beauty on the inside, because the way you make me feel, and over and over and over again. And he says, you know, besides, you know, you can learn, you know. And uh, that was the way it was back in my day. It really was. It, it, it was. Now it's like we can learn together, you know. So there's, there's a difference. And then women, ladies, and I, I don't want to just go by books that I've read and things like that and things I've observed. Things are, are not cut, just cut and dry. I know that. But ladies really do um, connect with their surroundings. And that's why a house and a home is so important. Whether it's an apartment, whether it's a first-time apartment, whether it's a house, whatever it is, it, it's just, it's just kind of special to them. You know, the men look at it like, just give me a recliner and the cable, and I'm good, you know? Refrigerator nearby, I'm good with it. And some guys, by the way, in the newer generations, they try to, to help their wife decorate, and don't do that. That's just, not, that's just not a good thing. That's just not a good thing. You know, this is, this is you know, your wife's domain, and she has a, a certain connection with her surroundings. It doesn't have to be a home. It could be the land. It could be a town, whether she has connection with it or not. And so at the same time, ladies, you look at a house at home and think, wow, this is neat. It's all cleaned up. It's just the way I like it. It's pleasing to you. It does something to your heart to see that. It's fitting for you. As you see the beauty of God, you become more God-centered and less self-centered. 
For example, when you see the picture of a, a newborn baby, a, a little baby, for example, you see a picture of a little baby. Do we have a picture? Uh, gosh, I, I, I had the picture up. There it is right there. Now, you look at that baby and you think, hmm, honey child, what can you do for me? You know, I can, I can see right now she's going to be able to mow grass for me. And she's going to be able to, to cook and to clean. And, uh, you, you know, she's going to take care of me in my old age. You don't think about that at all. You think about how can I serve my newborn child, right? It makes you less self-centered and more others-centered. And so, in fact, some, some ladies, the first child, they don't even want to put in the nursery. And the second child, they're anxious to put them in the nursery. <laughs> and the third child, they'll drop off the baby at the nursery and go shopping somewhere, you know? But that first one, wow, you know, just it makes you less self-centered. True worship is seeing the beauty of the Lord, not just his usefulness. If you're looking to God, and every time you come to God and say, God, you know, look, these three things are going to... Well, okay, one thing. No, really, God, three things. If you would answer these three things, it's going to make me happy. What you're saying is, I have a business relationship with God. I'm connected to him in a useful way. He's useful to me. Therefore, I want this, this, and this. And if you will answer my prayers, then I will praise you for what you have done. A love relationship with God has to do with, God, I see you in all your beauty. I see you in all that you are. I see you in all your glory, and I want to get closer. I want to see this glory more. And I just, I can't help but have this smile on my face. I can't help but just simply describe how wonderful you really are because you have a love relationship with him. So true worship is not about you looking God as useful, but looking at him as Beautiful. And the psalmist recognizes that. And so he begins in verse 2. And then he begins to describe how useful God is. You know, and you say, well, that, that doesn't make sense. And in a way, it doesn't. But in a way, when he sees the beauty of God, he sees the way then how God has already served. God has already been so useful. How God has already answered all of his prayers. In fact, how God takes care of people. And so the second question is, how can, how can we do this? How can we look upon God's beauty? We look upon God's beauty because of the glory and what he has brought to the table. Look in, first of all, in verse two, it says, God takes pleasure in coming to your rescue. Isn't that great? God has already taken pleasure in coming to your rescue. That's what makes him so beautiful. Look in verse 2. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the broken, broke, uh, brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. In fact, he counts the number of stars. He gives them names. You know, there's billions of stars out there. And it says here, he has so much power and so much knowledge that he gives them names. So he's got all the knowledge he needs to rescue you. Then it talks about his strength and his power. God, great is our Lord and abundant in strength. He has the power to rescue you. His understanding is infinite. He has the wisdom to rescue you. And he wants to. 
And we can see this over and over. Look in verse 6. The Lord supports the afflicted. He brings down the wicked to the ground. He rescues us. I want you to look at one, one aspect that we have not looked at in Psalms, and that is this word outcast. This has the idea of those being in a foreign land and they're coming back home. But it has to do also with rejection. Rejection is a feeling of betrayal and abandonment by someone that you love. And that can oftentimes affect you because you feel like in this world you ought to have unconditional love and you just cannot. I remember a good friend of mine that really helped mentor me as a young pastor. He's only three or four years older than me and he encouraged me to build a library. He encouraged me to preach and got different places for me to preach, kind of coached me along the way uh, a little bit. And we sort of had a parting of the ways because I went off to school and he stayed there in Georgia. And so we didn't, we didn't talk that much, but we did visit some. I came home one time and uh, he was just talking to me about a trip that he just made to Dallas, Texas. And I said, uh, why'd you go out there? You know, I was just curious because I was living in Fort Worth at the time. And he said, well, I, I would have come to see you, but I really, I found who my dad was and uh, I went out to visit him. And I said, really? Because I knew this was a struggle with his life. His dad had abandoned him early, early in life. And he said, I went and visited my dad. I found him. And uh, I said, how'd that go? And he said, oh, he's got his own family now. I mean, I stayed with him in his house, but I could tell, so disappointed, felt so rejected. And he was really never the same again. Just never the same. And I know that this affected him. And in fact, he, he left the ministry just a few years later. And he felt like his dad ought to love him above anybody else. And he had no affection for him. Jesus was rejected by men. He died on a cross, and his love for us never ends. How beautiful is God, that unconditional love. No one can love you unconditionally on this earth. You say, oh, no, no, I, I love my kids unconditionally. I'm not going to argue that. You know, there may be some stopping point. You know, what is it? You know, is it drugs? Is it it's something that uh, he, he kills one of his brothers or sisters? Sometimes there's an end to human love. But this is for sure. One day we're going to die, and that love for them in that way is going to end. The only one that can love you unconditionally, whether it's a father, mother, only God, can love you in this way. And he's willing to rescue us in salvation and rescue us in so many other ways as well. And that's why he was beautiful to the psalmist. Then we find in verse 7, God takes pleasure in providing your needs. Look with me in verse 7. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God on the lyre. Who covers the heavens with clouds and provides rain for the earth? Look Look how he provides, he says, for nature, who makes grass to grow in the mountains. He gives the beast, he says, hey, he, he provides for the animals. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens which cry. He does not delight in the strength of a horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. And really, this is talking about war. The legs of a man and the, the climbing of those mountains and those hills to do battle. And the horses, and there many of them riding on horses to go to battle. He says, God doesn't trust in those things. God has his own agenda. 
And he takes pleasure in meeting the needs of people. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 6. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. As to what you eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the field, or look at the birds of the air. And they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? We see illustration after illustration in the Bible in Jesus' life where he took pleasure in providing for people. The, the lame man at Beset, the pool of Bethsaida, he made him to walk. The ten lepers that he healed, the people that he fed with the, the loaves and the fish as he broke them in half and fed thousands. Over and over and over again, Jesus is giving an example. But also he has met our needs right here. He is the provider for us. Now, who does he provide for? Look in verse 11. The Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait or hope for his loving kindness. And so he says there, there is a condition here. And in the Old Testament, it was described as fearing God and trusting or hoping or waiting upon him in trust. Now, this whole idea of fearing God, by the way, is not something that we're afraid of God or something. But we see the awesomeness of God. We're safe. You know, we're, we're saved. We, we've invited Jesus Christ into our heart. We don't fear hell anymore. We don't fear the judgment of God anymore. But we still fear the Lord. It's, it's like uh, several years ago, we, we had a lot of hurricanes here. In fact, it seemed like Florida one day was going to be blown away. And it was maybe 10, 12 years ago. And I can remember uh, Hurricane, what was it, Charlie that came through here? Devastated so many things. The awesome power of God and all that. I wasn't in town at the time. I, was, I can remember I was up at Liberty University with my oldest son checking out the school. And all this was happening down here. And I was sort of, I felt helpless to do anything. And my family was here. And they were all trapped there in the bathroom as they should be. And uh, my middle, middle son, Jared, said, I want to go out and see it. You just have to know him. And, uh, but some people did, and they saw the trees bent over. In fact, before the hurricane even came in, you saw the awesome winds and the power and the rains. And you think, wow, I can't believe the wind can do that. I can't believe that awesome power that's coming through. I'm safe, but I still see the awesome power of God. There's a wholesome fear a respect for the Lord. But there's also a trust in him, a waiting upon him, not trusting in something man or man-made, as we see here the, the beast of the field and the legs of man, the horses and the men. It's not trusting in the things of men, but trusting in the Lord, knowing he takes pleasure in meeting our needs. Yes, he is a useful God, but he, he is both Beautiful and useful. We know that to continue a relationship, you have to have expressions of love. And so now we're not looking at God to be just useful. We're looking at God and say, God, would you express your love toward me in some way? And the psalmist says, oh, he, he really has. He's met my needs. God takes pleasure in honoring his word, and the rest of the psalm is about that. I want you to notice the word of God, so important. 
because as it's looking at the word, it's only looking at the first five um, books of the Bible. That's all the psalmist had at that time. And they're talking about this word, but they're talking about something that is foundational to that word, and that is God's integrity. His word is his bond. And notice what it says here in verse 12. Praise the Lord. He starts off that in every paragraph. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He's strengthened your city. He's protecting you. And then he says, he has blessed your sons within you. He makes peace in your borders. He satisfies you with the finest of the wheat. He says, he's taken care of you. Now, we can look at this better than any other nation in the world, how God has blessed us and taken care of us. But he says, I keep my word. I've made a covenant with you. And even though you have not kept your word, I keep my word. That's what he's saying. But he says also, he says, you can trust me and you can see the beauty in me because he sustains his word. Look in verse 15. He sends forth his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. Not in Florida, but in many places around the world that snow comes. He casts forth his ice as fragments who can stand before his cold. He sends forth his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters to flow. He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He's saying, of all the things I've done. And he says, I have given my word to sustain my word for the future to the nation of Israel. And you can know that one of the reasons the nation of Israel was called in the first place is to take the word of God and to write it. They, they wrote it. Only a few authors in the entire Bible are not Jewish people. And those wrote as Jewish people told them the story. God gave the word of God to the Jewish nation to take care of it, to make it copies after copies after copies as they hand wrote it meticulously. And you can study the 4,000 New Testament fragments and understand how preserved the word of God really is. He says, I sustain the world and you can know it because I sustained my word through this nation. God is not finished with the nation of Israel yet. He's made a covenant with them. And if you were with us in the Revelation study, you know that God is not finished yet. He's going to bring them in in the last days. Then we find he preserves his word. Verse 19, I read it, and then verse 20. He has not dealt with us, dealt thus with any nation as far as his ordinance. They have not known them, praise the Lord. He said they haven't known the word. God is faithful to his covenant promise. And it's just like in the New Testament. Somebody can take the Bible, you can say, would you read the Bible? And they won't understand a lot of it. It's difficult to read a letter written to somebody else, isn't it? You ever try to do that? You open up a mail by mistake, hopefully it was by mistake. And uh, you open up somebody else's mail by mistake, it came to your mailbox. You open up and say, what? What is this? That's the way... Those who don't know the Lord, look at the Bible. Now, God reveals a lot of it to them, especially when it comes to salvation. That's how they learn it. But they only get a small portion. 
And you and I have access to the Holy Spirit through the entire Word of God. His beauty is reflected in His Word. So I want to ask you this morning. I want to ask you. As you have your relationship with God, is it a business relationship or is it a loving relationship? You say, yeah, but even the loving relationship, God, God really expresses his love. Yes, he does. But the attitude is so different from God, thank you so much for all that you've given me, for rescuing me in salvation, for rescuing me in, in, in just the normal everyday occurrences of life. God, thank you for meeting my needs. Thank you for giving me your word so I can understand you. Versus God, what have you done for me lately? Because in the business relationship, here, here's, go, here's what happens. You say, well, people drop out. People just, you know. You know, guys, some of you are retired right now. And you know that when you were working, especially if you were in an office type of position, sales position, maybe an engineering position, people were calling you and calling you, and you think, oh, you know, can I even take a vacation? Why were they calling you? They weren't calling you to tell you what a wonderful person you were. They weren't calling you to be your friend. Oh, no, 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 I had a lot of friends. Man, we, we did lunch when we were in town and all that. How often have they called you since you've retired? One of the biggest complaints of retirees, nobody calls me anymore. Why? Because you had a business relationship. You had a useful relationship with them. Not a loving one. So what about God? God, I just don't pray as much as I used to because, hey, I didn't think you answered the prayer the way you should have answered it. Or do you have a loving relationship where it says, God, even when you're, I don't feel you're useful, you're still beautiful. And dear friend, that's true worship. And you know, here's the thing. Jesus was beautiful when he was a baby. And Jesus, if you want to read the book of Revelation, has, has an awesome beauty even today. And I believe when he ascended even up into heaven in Acts chapter 1, I believe there was a beauty there. But when he was on the cross, he lost his beauty. Listen to what. Isaiah says about the Lord on the cross. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we were healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned his, to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, our sin of us all, to fall on him. He became ugly because of our sin. He gave up his beauty for a time to be stricken, to be afflicted, to be useful for you and I. We've done a series of messages on face-to-face -face with God. And dear friends, you must seek his face, his beauty, before you see his hand, his action. 
And so this morning, maybe you're sitting here today and say, wow, this is new information to me. Or maybe you're sitting here today and saying, you know, I, I need to come to grips with this fact that God wants to rescue me. He wants to come into my life. He wants to make something different out of me. He wants to make me beautiful as I reflect him. With heads bowed and eyes closed, that may be the prayer of your heart. I pray that it is. But if you've never received Christ, if you've never been rescued by him, I ask you to look upon the beauty of the cross. In just a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. But in the quietness of this moment, as our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if the prayer of your heart is to trust Jesus, you fear him, you want to wait upon him, you want to hope in him, trust in him, pray this prayer with me silently as I pray aloud. Lord Jesus, you are so beautiful. Beautiful, and I praise you, God, for who you are. I praise you, God, for your power. The fact that you rule over everything and, and you're able, you're able and willing to die for me so I could be rescued. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. I ask you to come into my life and heart. And I pray that you would guide me in this life to see you for who you are and follow you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.